Hello, friends, and welcome back to another Q&A episode with yours truly. It's just me today answering your questions. And a quick reminder about how this works before we jump in. I'm answering questions from patrons, specifically from patrons who are contributing $10 per month or more. Those are the people that get to submit questions for the Q&A. And if you enjoy these Q&A episodes and you would like your questions featured, you can always become a patron. It's a good way to support the podcast and you'll get access to follow-ups and some other goodies as well. This is my second Q&A episode. The first one was episode 62. If you missed it, if you want to check that out, I got a lot of really good questions and I've been really surprised at the response. That episode has been one of my most downloaded podcast episodes. So that's really cool. And I'm definitely going to keep doing these because it seems like you guys are into it. And I get a lot out of these too. I really think they're fun. So that's what's going on here. I've got a lot of really good questions to tackle today. One thing I forgot to mention last time that I wish I had mentioned is that you can feel free to treat these episodes like a buffet. Obviously, you can just listen through the whole thing if you want, but I try to make the timestamps really, really comprehensive and helpful. So you can scroll down right there in your podcast app and look at the nuggets, the timestamps, and scroll through and look at questions that seem interesting and bounce around whatever you want to do. These are not in any particular order. I did categorize them somewhat, but I kept it kind of loose and there's variety and they bounce all over the place. And I, I think that's a fun way to do it. So again, feel free to listen straight through or feel free to bounce around whatever you would like. And then just two quick announcements before I get started here. Uh, the first one is that I just launched a Facebook group for the podcast. It is called The Nugget Climbing Community, and I would love to see you over there. Uh, this is something new. I really wanted to create something where I get to interact with you guys more than I do doing the podcast. It's really fun to get messages from you guys from time to time over emails or Instagram, but this is more of a space where we can have conversations and discussions about episodes or about questions that you guys have or about things that you're psyched about or sons that you're proud of or goals that you have or things that you're grateful for. Whatever it is, I'm really excited to chat with you guys and get to know you a little bit over there. So come join us. Again, the Facebook group is called The Nugget Climbing Community, and you can find it on my website. If you click on bonus content at the top of the page, there's a link to it there. Or if you're on Instagram, you can find it in my Instagram links as well. There's a few places to get to it, but I'd love to have you join. I think it's gonna be really fun. And I'm thinking about doing some live Q and A's over there as well from the van. They'll be a little bit more off the cuff, kind of fast and loose, and I think they'll be really fun. So come check it out if that is something that interests you. And then finally, I am also offering private Q&As. If you are getting a lot out of these Q&A episodes, and if you're the type of person who is like me and always has more questions than there are answers, and every new answer leads to even more questions, you know, if you're where I was 10 years ago and you just have so many burning questions about training or performance climbing or how all this stuff works, if you just want to pick someone's brain for a couple hours or just chat, I'd love to do a private Q&A with you. You can learn more about them on the website, but I'm offering up to two hour private Q&As. I'll record them 
and I'll send you a downloadable MP3. It'll sound just like the podcast does. And I'll put together some show notes for you too. So you don't even have to have a pen and paper. The whole thing will be recorded for you to reference in the future. It'll basically be like a personalized podcast episode just for you. So if that's something that interests you, go ahead and head over to the website at thenuggetclimbing.com and click on the coaching tab and you'll find private Q&As there and you can submit an application because I don't know how much bandwidth I'll have for these, but I think they'll be really fun. And I would love to have a conversation with any of you who are interested and answer questions about literally anything. I'm an open book and I'd love to pass on anything I've learned, any way that I can be helpful. I think that would be really fun for me. So check out the Facebook group, private Q&As for those who are interested in that. And I think that's it. Without any further ado, we'll dive in. Please enjoy Q&A number two with yours truly. My first question is from Scott. He has a question about party tricks versus useful exercises. Scott writes, in your interview with Eric Hurst, he talked about how he wasted, and that's in podcast air quotes, wasted 20 years working on the front lever when he could have spent those years developing a stiffer core through plank and rollout exercises involving feet to hands body tension. He likened the front lever as well as the one-arm pull-up to a party trick rather than useful exercises. This blew my mind. So my question is, what other exercises are climbers doing that could be considered party tricks? What are useful exercises that achieve what those party tricks do not? For example, what exercise or lift would benefit a climber in place of a single rep of a one-arm pull-up? So yeah, this is an excellent question, and I want to clarify a couple things from Eric's interview, and then I'll circle back around to other exercises and the rest of the question. But first, I want to clarify the wasting 20 years for the front lever. The way that I understood Eric in that conversation is that he was saying there were a lot of years where he thought his core strength was sufficient because he could do a front lever. He would test the front lever from time to time. Yep, I can still do one for 10 seconds. Or he would even continue training it. But he thought, oh, I can do a front lever. Therefore, my core is strong. And what he wasn't doing because of that was some of the other core exercises that would have addressed things that he was actually lacking. So things like the deadlift and things like heavy planks, those train your core in a different way than the front lever. So the front lever is not a bad exercise. Having the strength to do a front lever is excellent for climbing. And I don't think it's just a party trick, but I think what he was really getting at was there were other parts of his core strength that he was neglecting because he could do a front lever and so he thought everything was good to go. So I hope that adds a little clarification about that part. So now let's talk about the one-arm pull-up thing, because I think he did say that for him to do a one-arm pull-up was basically just a party trick rather than useful training. And again, having the strength to do a one-arm pull-up or even training to be able to do a one-arm pull-up is likely very good and very relevant strength for climbing. But in this case, what he was really getting at is that 
doing a single rep of something that is maximal is not the best way to get stronger. It's just not the best way to program your strength training to build more strength. If your goal is to build strength and to improve your weighted pull-up or to work towards a one-arm pull-up, you really want to be working in like the three to five rep range. That's for like maximal relative strength. Once you get above that, you know, especially once you get up to like eight to 10 or even 12 reps, then you're kind of getting into more of that like bodybuilder rep range and you might be putting on more mass. That's a more hypertrophy focused protocol. But if you want to just get strong, it's a really good idea to stay in that kind of three to five rep range per set. And you might do a total of like 10 to 15 or even even more total reps in a session. But you want to be using a weight with which you can do three to five reps. And I think what Eric was saying in that conversation is that his son Cameron is so strong that Cameron can actually do sets of five reps with one-arm pull-ups with weight added in his other hand. He's ridiculously strong. But for Eric, he can barely do one rep of a one-arm pull-up at body weight. So it's not good for him to train using a one-arm pull-up. He's better off using two-arm pull-ups and adding weight until five reps is hard for him. So again, the one-arm pull-up isn't really the issue. In this case, he's talking more about just programming his training, and it's better for him to stay in that five-rep range. And to do that, he has to use two arms with weight added. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. And then as far as what are useful exercises that achieve what those party tricks do not, I want to share one personal anecdote. I've been working on my scapular strength for the last few months, uh, this is something that I started doing based on a recommendation from Steve Mache. Uh, he gave me this kind of scapular lock-off exercise, and I think I talked about it in my episode with him, and I shared a video, and I will share a video in these show notes as well. But you basically shrug your shoulders up with your arms extended hanging from a pull-up bar, and then you let go with one hand and maintain that packed shoulder position with one arm and basically lock off your scapula. And then you grab with the other hand and do it on the other side. And you do that a couple times. And I've just been doing that for five sets on the minute. So the whole thing takes five minutes and I do that twice a week. And I've been doing that for a few months and my scapular strength has improved dramatically. And I did a front lever for the first time in a long time the other day at the gym. I was just goofing around. I hadn't tried one in a long time and I could do a front lever. And I'm pretty sure it's from doing those scapular exercises. Again, I don't think there's anything wrong with the front lever or the one-arm pull-up. I think those are great exercises. Hopefully I was able to clear up some confusion by adding a little more context. Okay. Next question is from Brandon. I'm curious as to how you personally have gone about training with a very long-term goal in mind. You've expressed a strong desire to send Just Do It at Smith Rock. Are you doing any specific training with that route in mind or instead just focused on a more generalized approach to getting stronger? And since you have the freedom to choose your location season to season, have you made plans with that route in mind? Be it going to an area to train for that goal or even going back to Smith to start putting work in to send the route. Like most aspirational climbers, I have several life list routes that seem very far away right now, so I figured I'd see if you had put any thought or action into pursuing them yourself. Eager to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, this is a cool question. Thank you, Brandon. 
And you're right. I really want to send Just Do It. Just Do It is a 14C at Smith Rock, and it was the first 14C in America, and it is uniquely inspiring to me. And for me, it's a long ways off. It's probably a five-year goal, something along those lines. So you asked, am I doing any specific training with that route in mind or instead just focused on a more generalized approach to getting stronger? And the answer's kind of both. They're kind of one and the same. I'll kind of break down the route and how I'm thinking about it and what I'm working on. So just do it. For those of you who've never been to Smith, who've never seen it, it's a very long route. The first part of the route, it's basically a pitch on its own is this dead vertical 13D and super technical, very thin, very facey. And then you get this amazing rest and then the wall gets much steeper. And you basically have a few bolts of 512-ish climbing, like pretty good holds, but it's starting to get a little steeper and you start to get a little bit pumped. And then you have a really big jug, but you're in steep terrain. So you have to be able to recover on your arms. And then there's kind of two long boulder problems back to back with um, an okay but not great rest in between. And from what I understand, the first one is like nine moves long and it's about V8. And then you get this shakeout and then the next one's like 11 moves long and it might be V9, something along those lines. And the boulders are hard. They have a few really savage moves on pretty small holds, and it's actually pretty steep. It's surprisingly steep for Smith. And the nature of those two boulder problems are actually kind of like board climbs. Like they're kind of not exactly moonboardy, but they're kind of like tension board or, you know, like a home woody sort of thing where the holds are pretty small, the movement's not that complicated, and it's about that steepness angle where it's kicked back just enough that it's pretty hard to keep your feet on and pretty hard to hang on to those small holds. So knowing myself and thinking about what I'm able to do now and what I'm going to need to be able to do, there's a couple key things. So first, I definitely need to get stronger to do the route. I can climb V8, I can climb V9, but I think it was Mark Anderson that had this rule that he felt like he needed to have a two V-grade buffer. So if a crux high up on the route is a V9, he needs to be able to climb at least V11 in that style to have a chance of doing it with the added fatigue of all the climbing below that. And I like that rule. I don't know if it's exactly true, but I think that's a good ballpark. And I know for myself that I'm definitely not at a V11 level in that style of climbing. I think I might be at a V11 level in steep compression climbing with pretty good holds where it's more about like squeezing and things like that. But man, put me on a board, put me on like a spray wall or a moon board or a tension board and I really struggle and I'm definitely not climbing at that kind of grade. So I think the biggest thing that I need to work on over the next few years is getting my fingers stronger and getting better at that kind of basic raw strength style of climbing. Honestly, I need to spend a lot more time on the boards and bouldering on kind of fingery, you know, 40-ish degree, 30 to 40 to 50 degree terrain. So that's the main thing I'm working on. And then I also think I need to be able to recover a lot better on steep terrain on jugs. 
As I said, the rests on Just Do It are actually very good, but you're really hanging on your arms as you get higher up on the wall. And I really struggle with that because I've spent so much time at Smith where for the most part, things are fairly vertical and you can keep more weight on your feet. I really struggle with recovery in steep terrain, even on very good holds. So for that, luckily, I get to just go travel around and do a lot of steep sport climbing. I think that's going to be a very important component for me to get more comfortable in places like Rifle and the Hurricane over the next few years, uh, do more bouldering in Waco, which is really steep on pretty good holds, and just kind of slowly build up my comfort level with steep terrain and hanging on with more weight on my hands on good holds. Um, so those are kind of the two main components of like the raw ingredients that I think I need to have to be able to do something like just do it. And then once those are in place and as I start getting closer to doing the route, then things will become much more specific. So that's where I might start you know, trying to figure out how to set replicas on a spray wall and do linked up boulder circuits where I do like a really hard nine move sequence to a crappy shakeout to an 11 move sequence, that sort of thing. Or, you know, really hard doubles like I talked about with Drew Mack in our episode. Um, that's where the targeted power endurance, strength endurance stuff will become a lot more important. But for now and over the next few years, I'm really just focusing on those two ends of the spectrum, just like raw strength and bouldering and then steep sport climbing. So that makes things pretty fun, you know? Like I have this kind of longer goal in my mind, but in the meantime, I'm trying to plan my life on the road to where I'm kind of simultaneously working towards those two things. So I plan to spend the summers and winters doing more bouldering over the next few years. So for the summer, part of that will be training indoors like I'm doing now. I'm in Wenatchee training at the gym or in places like Rocky Mountain National Park. And then in the winters, I think I'll be going back to Waco for the next few years and just really spend the time over the next few years creeping up my bouldering level and trying to get to a point where I'm climbing V11 in that kind of basic pissed off board style on small little crimps and stuff. And then the shoulder seasons, the spring and fall, I really love St. George and I really love Rifle. And there's a lot of other places. I've got some specific routes in mind that I think would be good stepping stones for something like Just Do It. There's a couple other 14As at Smith that I think I should try to do. Uh, there's a 14A at the Monastery that I think would be a really good one. So it's I actually have a, a list of kind of milestone goals working towards this bigger goal of just do it. And the really fortunate thing and the reason I'm so psyched on this longer term goal is because all of those intermediate goals are things that I'm really psyched on anyway. So those are routes that I actually really want to do regardless. And it feels really motivating to have that kind of alignment with my short term and my longer term goals. So as far as yourself and any recommendations I would have, I think it's really difficult to be motivated for something that feels really, really far away. Our brains just don't work that way as humans. So if I could give any advice, I mean, one thing that I got a lot of benefit out of was just sitting down and writing out those goals, you know, like 
here's my goal for this year, and then here's some goals for next year. Or who who cares? Who cares how long they take? But here are like the five steps and make them specific, make them actionable. Maybe even write down like how you will reward yourself if you accomplish each of these goals. You know, like maybe you'll take yourself on a vacation or maybe you'll buy something nice for yourself or whatever it is. But yeah, I think if you can break it down and make it feel like the next step is tangible and it's something you can start working on right now and it's something that you're excited about for its own sake either a specific route that you want to do that's a good stepping stone or a style of climbing that you're excited to get better at or whatever i think if you can find a way to make your long-term goal into a bunch of short-term goals i think that could be really helpful this question is from nolan This is really interesting. He basically asked the exact same question as Brandon, but I'm going to read it anyway uh, because there's a couple parts of it that I didn't touch on yet. So Nolan writes, I am interested in hearing you talk about your current strategy on how to work towards your goal. Just do it. How long has this goal been a target? First time you watched Fast Twitch? Tell me about the strategies you have implemented to work towards the goal. If it makes sense, I'd like you to elaborate on what specific strengths or skills fall short for the goal and which ones do you think may be adequate. So yeah, I already touched on most of that. As far as how long it's been a goal, uh, that's actually fairly recent. It didn't really click that it was a goal for me until this fall. You know, just do it as a route that I've always dreamed of doing, but it kind of sat in that space in my mind of like, if I were ever strong enough to do that, that would be cool. But it wasn't until this fall that it kind of shifted to more of a empowered, like, oh my God, if I want to do this thing, I need to make a plan and make it happen sort of thing. Uh, and interestingly, I think it was when I did the reverse interview with Ethan Pringle, and it was a question I got from Steve Bechtel that really sparked that moment. And it kind of clicked that this is something I really want to do. So if that makes you curious, you can go back and listen to my reverse interview with Ethan, uh, episode 44, I think. I'll put it in the show notes for this one. And then as far as what specific skills or strengths fall short and which ones might be adequate, I think I already answered the which ones fall short part. Um, As far as which ones are adequate, I've actually spent some time on the first pitch of the route, the 13D, and I was really pleasantly surprised to realize that it wasn't that bad. I was kind of intimidated because it's 13D and it's dead vertical, and I was thinking that it was going to be totally heinous, but it turns out that it's actually a lot more secure than I expected. It's very thin, but it's reasonably secure. I did all the moves very quickly and I felt like I could put that thing together in a reasonable amount of time. So I was actually relieved to find that I think technically from a technical movement and footwork standpoint, I think I'm good to go. Of course, I can always become a better climber, but I don't think my ability to stand on tiny footholds and do tic-tac-y face climbing movements is what's going to keep me from doing this thing. Uh, like I said, the hard part up high on the route, the hardest part, 
is actually not very complicated as far as the climbing moves. It's not that technical. It's just kind of hard. <laughs> so I need to get stronger. Okay, Nolan also writes, I also have a burning question about the Steve Mache podcast that involves the pyramid idea. I am familiar with a feeling of boulder problems or sport climbs dropping off of your pyramid as time goes on. If you alternate between bouldering and sport climbing multiple times a year, do you keep the sport climbing pyramid and bouldering pyramid completely separate? Can they intermingle in some way? When my time is split between disciplines, I find it difficult to really push myself farther in them independently. I do feel I am improving overall though. Yeah, Nolan, this is a really good question. And this is one that I actually asked Steve uh, myself. So I can relate to your confusion here and hopefully provide some clarification. What Steve basically said to me and what I think is working well for me is that if you can kind of get that initial momentum going with that big pyramid, then if you're coming back to it every other season, like if you're bouldering in the winter, sport climbing in the spring, bouldering in the summer, you don't need to start the whole pyramid over again. You can continue building on the previous pyramid. You might need to do kind of a mini pyramid just to get some momentum again and kind of attune yourself to bouldering again if it's been a while, but that doesn't need to be the full thing. So what that might look like for me is, you know, coming off of Waco, I was working on this V11 pyramid. I think I have a couple of V8s and 9s and an 11 left and that's it. But I might start out by focusing on the 8s or even add a couple extra 7s just to tune back in, you know, to make sure that I'm not jumping back into bouldering and just like hammering a V11 without doing the work to kind of get my body tuned up for bouldering again, if that makes sense. So I guess the short answer is you don't need to do the whole pyramid again, but maybe doing a small one just to make sure you're not spending all of your time projecting or all of your time doing things that are relatively easy for you. That's kind of what you're trying to do. You know, you're just trying to give yourself accountability to keep a balance of what intensity level you're working on on different days of the week. And as far as whether they intermingle, um, they don't. They're, they're totally separate, the sport climbing pyramid and the bouldering pyramid. And the sport climbing pyramid, I feel like you can get away with a narrower pyramid. It doesn't have to have as wide a base. I was curious about this with Steve. I was concerned that my sport climbing pyramid was just going to take too long to do. And, you know, he told me that I, I have spent so much time sport climbing over the last few years that I really don't need to do the entire pyramid. It's sufficient for me to just kind of keep an eye on my all-time pyramid and then to just keep some sort of a balance. So same idea, you know, just don't spend all of your time beating your head against one project, especially if it's the start of the season and you haven't sport climbed in a couple months. So do some easier routes, get some momentum again, and try to maintain a balance. And then one more piece of this is that I have been trying to focus on maintaining my strength and power, basically maintaining my bouldering while I'm sport climbing, but I'm not as concerned about doing the opposite. And that's there's a couple reasons for that. The first is that 
I think physiologically, it makes sense to kind of keep chipping away at your strength and power over the long term, as opposed to trying to maintain like power endurance. Uh, the strength thing is really just drops in the bucket. It takes a long time to fill your bucket of strength, but you can continue adding drops, hopefully throughout the year, all year, and really make some progress over months and months and months. So I really don't want to let that backslide when I'm sport climbing. On the flip side, I feel like I'm able to maintain a lot of my root fitness, even when I'm bouldering especially if I'm in a place like Waco and doing longer bouldery routes. So I'm not as concerned about maintaining it, but I want to add the caveat that that's partly because I've just done so much more sport climbing. So I'm not as concerned about it because I have such a big base of sport climbing, especially in the last seven years. So I don't know if I answered your question. I think it's a really good question. And I'm kind of going to be figuring this out myself, you know, over the next couple of years, I'm planning to keep swapping back and forth between bouldering and sport climbing. I'm hoping to improve both of them. I don't really know how well it's going to work. It's going well so far, but I will definitely bring you guys along with my journey and I'll keep you posted. Okay. This question is from Connor. Is your current lifestyle, van, travel, podcast, etc., financially sustainable? If not, do you have ideas besides organic listener and contributor-based growth to build more income while living a similar lifestyle? So yeah, there's kind of a short answer to this and then a longer answer. Uh, the short answer is yes, I think it is financially sustainable and I could not be more excited about that. Uh, I just recently reached a point with Patreon where I'm able to cover my expenses living really simply in the van, which is amazing. I didn't know if this thing would work at all, and that's a dream come true. So that's incredible. The longer answer is that I can only do that at the moment because I am still living really simply. Um, I'm basically making minimum wage doing this. I work on the podcast full time. So I really do hope to continue to grow and I'm really encouraged. I mean, this thing has grown, has really come a long way in the last year and a half. It hasn't even quite been a full year and a half that I've been doing this and it's growing quickly. So I think organic listener and contributor based growth uh, could take me a lot further and I'm excited to see what happens. But having said all that, yes, I am actively working on building more income. I would love to be able to have a career doing this and I would love to be able to save up and buy a house someday. And I have a lot of ideas, you know, it'd be really great to be able to make enough money to hire somebody and get some help with some of this stuff because I definitely have more ideas and more things that I'm excited to work on than I have bandwidth for. So a few months ago, I decided to invest in myself and get some coaching. So I'm actually getting some podcast business coaching, very specific, and that's been awesome and it's already helping a lot. So I'm excited to see what grows out of that. This question is from Jimmy. Can you go over your favorite training workouts to transition from bouldering to sport mode? I find the reverse easy as I just incorporate more bouldering into training days, but boulder to sport always feels grueling. Yeah, that's interesting. For me, I probably feel the opposite. I think I have an easier time transitioning back to sport climbing, probably because I've just done more of it relative to bouldering over the last handful of years. 
I typically like to get my fitness back by sport climbing. And this kind of goes back to Nolan's question in the pyramid. I just try to have a chunk of time at the start of the season where I'm doing some new routes that aren't at my limit. So I might ease back in by doing some 512s and then maybe some routes in the 13A, 13B range and just get some momentum and some fitness back before I start projecting a 13D, for instance. Uh, but I do know Jimmy and I know that he lives near a crag that has a finite number of routes and that might be harder for him to do. So uh, some other ideas, if I were going to try to just train indoors, for sport mode, uh, transitioning into sport climbing mode. I mean, I think I'm just going to draw from a couple recent episodes that I've done. I really like the, the foot on campusing exercise that Steve McClure shared. I think he's right in that that power endurance pumpy zone is what a lot of sport climbers struggle with coming from bouldering or coming from easy trad. So I'd probably do like a foot on campusing workout once or twice a week, probably probably like once a week. And then the other thing I would draw from is my conversation with Drew Mack. And I might, you know, start out, maybe if you're a month out from sport mode, have a session where you do some two by twos, you know, like pick a pretty hard boulder that you can do, but not with a lot of buffer and do it, drop off, do it again, and then rest a little bit and do that double one more time. And that's basically your whole workout. Like these should be really hard boulders. Um, and then work towards three by threes. Maybe the next week have a workout where you do some linked circuits, something along those lines. And then the only other thing I would say is that, you know, it might be helpful as you get closer to sport climbing season to just have a day, like one day a week, where you do some very, very easy mileage climbing, like so easy that you're not even getting pumped. And you could do this as a recovery workout. You know, the nice thing about it is that it wouldn't take away from your other training and just really focus in on relaxing because that is something coming from bouldering back to sport climbing. That's the thing that takes some time to get back is just flowing and relaxing and remembering that you don't have to overgrip everything just kind of getting that flow back. So I think that's another thing that could help. But yeah, to summarize, I think the foot on campusing would be really good. And then just trying to target that energy system work and maybe replace some of the bouldering with that as you get closer to the season. I think that set you up pretty well. This question is from Liam. I have come across the concept that people should try to climb with their shoulders in a stable, externally rotated position because it is safe for our shoulders. The goal of this is to prevent injuries. However, I have also heard that trying to always climb in a safe position will leave you unprepared for shouldery moves when you can't stay in a safe range. How do we balance climbing or training in safe positions and preparing our bodies for tweaky moves? Yeah, this is a really good question. And what immediately comes to mind is my conversations with Natasha Barnes. And I don't want to put words in her mouth, but I think she would likely say that it really comes down to tissue capacity. So you don't want to do a hard tweaky move if you've never done a move like that before, because your tissues haven't had a chance to build up and strengthen and adapt to that weird position. So 
I don't think this is something you need to overthink or worry too much about. I mean, I would recommend avoiding weird tweaky moves on a regular basis and try to learn how to climb with your shoulders in a strong, safe position. But I think the way that we prepare for this is to just expose ourselves incrementally and gradually to weird moves as we progress through the grades. So I don't think you should always avoid them and then one day try a super duper hard thing that has this move you've never done. I think a much better strategy is to you know, try the V3 version of that move and then eventually try the V5 version of that move and then try the V7 version. And then, you know, one day there might be a V10 version of the move that you come across. But I think it really comes down to tissue capacity. Our bodies have an incredible ability to adapt. And where we tend to go wrong and get injured is when we try to do too much too soon. And too much could be either intensity or volume or both and we overload our tissue's capacity. So yeah, I wouldn't stress about it. I wouldn't avoid tweaky moves, but I also wouldn't just hammer yourself against them. You know, I'd be cautious and thinking about building up your body to be able to climb in these strange positions over years and years. That's what I would say. Again, I'm no expert with this, and I would recommend reaching out to Natasha Barnes if you have more specific questions. I've got a bunch of questions from Alec. Alec's first question is, what does the edit process look like for you? My edit process varies greatly from episode to episode. Uh, my philosophy is that I just want to pull out anything that is distracting or disrupts the flow of conversation. And my ideal episode is one where I don't have to edit at all. So it really depends. Some episodes I hardly do anything and some of them I'm pretty nitpicky and pull out a lot of awkward pauses or likes and ums and stuff like that. But I think I'm doing less of it in general as time goes on. I think I'm becoming less of a perfectionist with it and just appreciating the human elements of every guest that I talk to and just letting the conversation roll naturally. So yeah, it depends, but I'm just trying to keep the conversation moving. His next question, what do you talk about in your pre-show call? Uh, I'm just trying to get to know people a little bit. You know, I don't always do a call. Um, I find that if I'm talking to a pro climber, on one hand, they don't have the time to talk to me twice. And then on the other hand, I can learn a lot more about them on the internet. Uh, it's really the people that I don't know well and that are difficult to to learn about on the internet that I like to talk to beforehand. And we usually just talk. We get to know each other a little bit. I explain the show and what to expect and kind of give them a rundown of what I think would be interesting to talk about. And I like to ask them what they want to talk about and what they'd rather avoid talking about. And, you know, if they have any hit stories that I think would be really good to hit and what would be a good way to lead into that. You know, sometimes I surprise them with that kind of stuff, but sometimes that comes from them. And, you know, they're like, oh, I think this would be an interesting topic. And I just make a note of it and make sure that we include it. So yeah, usually just a conversation, getting to know one another. Do you have any insights into learning to climb fast? I'm really inspired by the springy, flowy style of Sean McCall and Tomoa Narasaki. 
they seem to move quickly even in lead climbing. I don't know if I have much insight. I climb pretty slow. (laughs) My nickname in college was Sloth, and I've sped up quite a lot since then, but I still am not the fastest climber. Um, I also don't know if it matters. I don't know if it's a goal. This is something that I'm curious about. I remember asking Kai Leitner about this, if he felt like his pacing ever held him back. I think it's really individual. I think it depends on your climbing style and your strengths and weaknesses. And some people do better moving fast. You know, Jonathan Segrist is probably the top American sport climber and he doesn't move all that quickly. You know, he moves at a medium or even slower pace and he's one of the best climbers in the world at super long endurance climbs. So I don't know how much it matters. As far as learning to climb fast, You could just practice. I think a really fun drill to do is to have a bouldering day where you're climbing things about at your flash level and you climb the boulder at different paces. So maybe you climb it two or three times back to back and the first time you're climbing it normally and then you climb it again incredibly slowly and try to be really static and smooth and lock everything off. And then you climb it a third time and you go really fast and you're springy and jumpy And maybe you don't feel very fast at first, but you practice it and you get quicker over time. So you could do something like that and just play with it and see if you like that kind of climbing. Um, But I would suspect that Sean and Tamoa didn't necessarily have to practice climbing like that. I would guess that that is just how they naturally climb. I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing that that's just kind of the way that their climbing reflects their personality, as Tande would say. Okay, Alex, next question. Do you have any proud ascents from Waco? Ah, man, my main objective got away from me. I tried this boulder problem called Free Willy for basically the whole trip and didn't do it. Um, It wouldn't have been my hardest climb as far as the grade goes, but it might have been my hardest just based on the style. It's in a style that's always been really hard for me. I was really hoping to climb a V10 in that kind of basic moonboard style, but that one got away. Uh, I did do another V10 called Theater of the Absurd. That one was super cool, more of a roof climb on better holds, uh, and then a really cool tall V2 highball top out. So that one was really fun, and that was my hardest climb of the trip. Uh, As far as other proud ascents, though, I had a really good trip of first attempts. I was able to flash a lot of boulders in the V7 range, and I flashed a V8, which I hadn't done in a couple years. And I went to Roy, New Mexico right after Waco and flashed a couple more V8s. Uh, That felt really good. I'd always struggled with flashing and doing things quickly in the past, and that's something I've really worked on in the last few years, but I haven't been on many bouldering trips to really try it out. And that was really gratifying to see that I've gotten better at that. How do you do weight training on the road? The first answer is I haven't done much in the last year, but I am starting to do some again. Uh, I keep it really simple though. I definitely, while I'm traveling on the road, I try to keep the strength training as just a small supplement to keep my body healthy. And I do basically as little of it as I can get away with. So I have a few kettlebells. I have an eight, 16 and 24 kg kettlebell. And I have a pull-up bar, and I do bodyweight stuff. So 
kettlebell presses. Uh, I've been doing decline push-ups recently. Sometimes I'll do one-arm push-ups or one-arm push-up variations. And then I've been doing my scapular strength stuff on the pull-up bar, but pretty simple setup. Areas you'll plan on climbing in for the rest of the year. So I'm in Washington, in Wenatchee right now, training indoors. Uh, from here, I think I'm going to go to Rocky Mountain National Park and boulder up in the Alpine for a few weeks. I'm really excited about that. I've never been there before. And then I'll definitely spend some time in Rifle in the late summer and fall. And I'd like to do at least a short trip to Ten Sleep to try to finish a route that I got close on last year. And not exactly sure from there. I have a route that I want to go back to near Colorado Springs. It's kind of off in the middle of nowhere by itself. Um, probably go back to that at some point and eventually make my way down to Waco for another winter season there. So that's the rough plan and I'm sure it will change because <laughs> that's how life goes on the road. This question is from Jeff. I would love to explore your climbing experience and specifically your sensation on the wall as your weight fluctuated. I really appreciate you sharing your experience with diet and weight, but would love to hear more about how your climbing changed as you regained your weight and how it is currently. Seems like you're climbing just as hard now, maybe even harder, and was hoping to hear more about the sensation of climbing light versus climbing strong. This is something I struggle with since I'm not super heavy, but not light either. I'm 160 pounds at 5'8", but have a lot of friends at 140 or even less at a similar height. Part of me thinks life would be so much easier if I lost 10 pounds, but would love to get your perspective on this since you've had firsthand experience. Thank you and looking forward to all the future guests. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah, this is a really big topic to tackle, but it's a really important question, so I will do my best. For those of you who haven't heard it, Jeff is referring to an episode that I did about an eating disorder. That's episode 59, I believe, a solo episode where I talk about my whole experience with this. And the short version is... I'm 165 pounds right now, and two and a half years ago, I was 140 pounds. So my climbing and my body have changed quite a lot. And I will say, man, that that transition was incredibly hard. And there was like a two-year period, basically, where I really struggled to climb at the level that I wanted to be climbing, and I felt heavy on the wall, and my motivation suffered, and my confidence suffered, and it was really difficult. You know, at the time when I was that light, I was really close to climbing my first 14A, and over the next couple of years, I was really struggling to climb 13 Bs and Cs, and... It took a lot of time for the strength to catch up as my body got heavier. But luckily, there was light at the end of the tunnel. And as you said, I think I am climbing just as hard now as I was before and maybe even harder. We'll see. I think I'm right there. I think I've just finally really caught up to my relative strength level before, which is amazing because I, like I said, I am 25 pounds heavier and I never thought my fingers could be this strong at this kind of body weight. So there is light at the other end of the tunnel. Um, it was really hard when I made that transition. I did feel really heavy on the wall and that sucked. 
And what's really interesting is that as I've gotten stronger, I actually feel almost exactly the same now as I did when I was 140 pounds, but at the same relative strength. And there was a period when I was probably 10 pounds lighter than I am now, like when I was at 155, where that's when I had gained weight really quickly and my strength hadn't caught up. That is when I've actually felt the heaviest that I've ever felt. And now I'm at 165 and I feel light again. So the sensation of climbing light versus strong, it's really weird, but it does almost feel like the same thing. And and part of it is probably that you get used to it, you know, like it's been two and a half years. So I don't remember exactly what it felt like to be 140 and to feel light like that. But I, I really do feel light again as I've gotten stronger. And sometimes I'm surprised when I step on the scale and I see that I'm still 165 pounds because of what I'm able to hold on to and just how light my body feels climbing on the wall. So, man, if you're getting stronger, I wouldn't worry about it. As far as the weight thing goes and your friends being 140 pounds, I'd be curious about their body composition, your body composition. If you're 160 pounds at five foot eight, but you're muscular and you're strong and you're built that way, I would encourage you to embrace it and just double down on getting strong and working on your powerful climbing. And I really doubt that you have maxed out your physical potential. I bet you're not even close watch more films of Matt Fultz and just see how freaking strong that guy is. And that'll inspire you and help you believe that you can get a lot stronger. Okay. This question is from David and it's a similar question. He writes, I got to say your episode 59, the eating disorder episode struck a chord with me. I've been dealing with similar difficulties and still trying to figure out a healthy balance between trying to lose body fat and still enjoy life. While I've been sending my hardest roots and boulders in recent years at the same body fat, I still feel as though it would give me an edge to shed some. I was wondering how you manage your weight at the moment. And while doing this, how do you manage your thoughts linked to your eating disorder? Thanks again for the content. It's great. Keep it up. Thank you, David. This is a really important question and it's really hard to answer, but I will do my best. Uh, I think I just talked about some of this in Jeff's question, so I don't want to repeat myself here. But I do want to say again that this really is an ongoing journey for anyone, for everyone, I think, and, and for anyone who's struggled with this stuff in the past. And the reason it's so difficult is because I don't think there's this black and white solution of you're either starving yourself or you're eating whatever the hell you want. Like Neither of those are good options. The reality is that we should probably all be somewhere in between, especially in the world that we live in where you can walk into the grocery store and see aisles and aisles of things that aren't actually food lining the shelves. Uh, that makes it really tough. And I do think it's really helpful to have some sort of an eating strategy. So that is something that I have thought a lot about and continue to play with. Um, I've talked about my way of eating a little bit in the past, but one of the things that I think has helped me the most is eating a higher protein diet. I try to get at least one gram of protein per pound of body weight per day, and I try to get that from Whole Foods, which for me means eating a lot of lean ground beef or 
steak or chicken or things like that, but I mostly eat lean red meat. And that has really helped with cravings. And I find that I don't think about food quite as much. And I also feel like I, if I stick to that, it's easier to just eat when I'm hungry and just listen to what my body wants and not overthink the rest of it that much. And it makes it easy to, to do that without overeating. So that's kind of a key strategy that I've been implementing for quite a while. And that has worked really well for me. And it seems like that's working for a lot of other people. I've had a lot of people on this podcast recommend that protein number also for performance, but I think it really helps with weight management and hunger and things like that as well. And then your second question, how do you manage your thoughts linked to your eating disorder? There's a couple things that come to mind with this. And the first one goes back to the question that I got from Jeff. It was a lot harder when I felt heavier on the wall. And that is something that just took time and that I just kind of had to wade through and it was really difficult. But now that I'm on the other side of that and I feel stronger again and I feel light again on the wall, it's a lot easier. I don't think about it nearly as much. I don't feel seduced by that same thought that I had, you know, what if I lost 10 pounds? Like that doesn't really make sense to me because I know that I've gotten stronger. I know that I'm climbing really well at this higher body weight. And one thing that's really helped is just kind of flipping my perspective around rather than thinking kind of, as you said, I still feel as though it would give me an edge to shed some weight. Flip that around and think to yourself, man, how strong would I get if I kept the weight on? Like, what if I just continued to give my body plenty of the best fuel I possibly can in the source of really good, high quality food and lots of protein? What if I did that and kept the weight on and used it as training weight? How strong would I get? Uh, that way of thinking has really helped me flip things around. And as long as I keep making progress with this, I'm going to keep focusing on that. Okay, this question is from Emma. She writes, My partner Ryan says I'm still trying to muscle my way through cruxy moves, where if I focused on technique, I'd find the moves much easier. I often find he's right, but besides falling a bunch and then reminding myself to slow down, how can I get better at damn technique in climbing? Maybe the answer is as simple as just continuing to climb more and more, but any advice is much welcomed. This is a very good question, Emma, and I don't think the answer is as simple as just climbing more and more. I think in this case, it's going to be much more about how you go about your climbing and the mindset and the intention that you bring to your climbing day. I think for you, it'd be really helpful to just try to get really curious about how you're moving and what it would be like to move better and what it would feel like to become a technician and a better climber and whatever that means for you. Um, one thing that helped me a lot when I was a newer climber was watching a shitload of climbing films and climbing videos. I know that sounds kind of silly and I was doing that just because I was obsessed with climbing, but I watched everything I could find. And I remember watching a handful of short films of Jonathan Segrist and maybe I'll link to some of my favorite ones in the show notes here, but I just watched those films over and over and over again. And I would really pay attention to how he moved. I would study how he climbed 
And I did that with everybody. I did that with all these climbers in these films because I was just fascinated with movement and flow and how to become a more graceful climber. I became obsessed with how do I make something that feels like a struggle? How do I make that feel more graceful and elegant so I can look the way that these other climbers look? So that might be something to try is start watching some films and find some climbers whose climbing style you admire and who you would aspire to move more like. Maybe that's Paige Klassen or Emily Harrington or Jonathan or who knows, but start exploring and watching some of these amazing climbers. And you can do that in person too. If you're at the crag, start really paying attention to how the best climbers there move. And I don't think you even necessarily need to come up with any specific drills or, or anything complex. Just really start to notice how people move and how you move and bring that awareness to your climbing day and to those attempts on your crux moves. There's a really interesting book that comes to mind, and it's one that I've actually given away multiple times to climbing friends of mine, uh, and it's a tennis book. It's called The Inner Game of Tennis, and it really explores skill development and skill learning, and it's not very long, and if you have no interest in tennis, that doesn't matter. It's just a book about learning physical movement skills, and I found it really helpful, and I think it's totally applicable to climbing and it might be worth reading. So that's another one to check out. And then final thing, one more recommendation is to practice technique on easier climbs. Uh, it's great to practice movement on hard climbs and crux moves and stuff like that. But, you know, keep in mind that every single warm up climb, every single climb that you do is an opportunity to practice moving better. And if you bring that sort of intention and awareness to how you warm up, to the V0s, to the V1s, to the V2s, to everything, then you can climb the exact same amount, but get a lot more skill development just because you're more aware and you're more present as you're going about your climbing day. This is another question from Emma. What training exercises beyond the hangboard do you find most useful to improve bouldering strength? Yeah, I think all basic foundational strength is going to apply here. So getting your body stronger in general is going to have really good carryover. The hangboard is obviously great for the fingers. Um, the deadlift is a really amazing full body tension building exercise. Specifically, it'll strengthen your posterior chain. But the deadlift, there might not be any better exercise for learning how to just create tension and tighten your tighten your core when you're doing a difficult movement and I think there is a lot of carryover to bouldering I mean there's so much stuff you could do I think weighted pull-ups would be good I think there's stuff on rings you could do but I will say a really great way to improve bouldering strength is to do more bouldering it might be as simple as that I think other strength training is helpful and might help you with injury prevention but spend more time bouldering, that will definitely get you stronger. Uh, outdoors and indoors, I think the gym and the outdoor crags are complementary in the ways that they help you get strong. Bouldering more outside is probably going to be better at helping you learn how to build tension between your hands and feet and maintain tension while you're doing hard foot movements. 
you don't really get that in the gym as much. Uh, the gym is going to get your kind of raw pulling strength and power. It's going to do a little bit more for that than climbing outdoors. And usually the boulders are a little bit longer and more in that kind of like strength or strength and endurance zone, which is a good complement for outdoor climbs, which are usually just maybe there's one or two hard moves and the rest of the moves are they're they're usually just less sustained. So yeah, more bouldering and a combination of time in the gym and time outside. I think that could be a really helpful addition to your schedule. Okay, I've got a handful of questions from Casey. Any supplements you take? Um, right now I'm trying collagen. I've taken collagen consistently a few different times at various points over the last few years. And it's one of those things. I truly do not know if it's made a difference. It definitely hasn't hurt. And the way I think about it is it makes sense that we would have gotten more collagen and glycine in our ancestral diets in the past than we do now, just based on our food system. And collagen is really important in connective tissue and our skin and a lot of different processes in our body. So it seems like it's worth taking. Uh, there's no real downside. So I'm experimenting with that. And I'm also just taking electrolytes right now. I'm trying out some electrolytes from Element, L-M-N-T. That's an electrolyte company that was started by Rob Wolf. They make electrolytes that have no sugar in them and it's sweetened with a little stevia. And I'm really liking that. I think I feel better taking those. It's just adding a little sodium and potassium and magnesium throughout the day. I usually have one or two of those packets per day and I just kind of sip on electrolytes throughout the day. And yeah, I think that's it right now. My philosophy is try to get everything you need from food. And the only time I supplement is when things that I think we normally would get in our diets if we were hunter-gatherers are things we're no longer getting based on our modern food system. So otherwise I feel like I'm getting everything I need. Okay, next question. Tips for focusing before hard efforts on an onsite, especially in a group of people. Do you get nervous? If so, any good strategies for that? Um, I don't get too nervous because of other people around. I do find that distracting sometimes. Um, I do get a little performance anxiety if I really want to onsite a route and I only have one chance or if I'm trying a red point that I really care about. So I can relate to that. I think one thing that has really helped is audible breathing. This is something that Ethan Pringle actually challenged me to, to work on, is just spending upwards of five minutes before I pull onto the route, you know, tied in with your shoes on, ready to go, just standing there and really breathing deeply, breathing deep into your belly, something like that really get oxygen into your blood. It really calms your nervous system. And it has this great other benefit of kind of getting everyone else around you to shut up. You know, it kind of sends this message of like, cool, okay, I'm not joking around right now. I'm focused. I really care about this and I'm in the zone. And it's really cool. Like other people tend to just kind of settle in and, and quiet down and pay attention and support you and 
um, I find that it really focuses like the whole vibe at the crag. And that's something that has really been helpful to me. Any thoughts on where you'd like to settle eventually? I, I don't know for sure. I have been spending more time in St. George, Utah over the last couple of years, and I really like it there. I especially love the climbing around that area and the climbing community, the sport climbing community there. I've got some really good friends there and I've really enjoyed my time. It feels pretty different from living in the Northwest, which I love. So that might be a tough transition. Uh, I don't know. I could kind of see myself finding a place in the Northwest somewhere and just trying to travel part of the year as well. So kind of zeroing in on some options, but I think I need to keep traveling around in my van and doing research. <laughs> Any trashy TV you've been addicted to, or are you somehow immune? <laughs> uh, I don't know if I'm immune. I mean, trashy TV has never really been my thing. I think what I get sucked into more than that, though, is just the classic Instagram, social media. I waste more and more time on Instagram in particular, and it's not all wasted. I think some of it is really fun and really cool, but I could definitely have some stricter boundaries for myself around that. I don't watch a lot of TV. I mean, I live in a van. I don't have cable or anything. I'll get hooked on a show from time to time, but yeah, for whatever reason, TV has never been my vice of choice. As far as shows, though, I'm kind of a sucker for animated comedy shows, and my recent favorite by far is a show called Big Mouth. It is made by Nick Kroll and a handful of other people, and it is about a bunch of teenagers going through puberty, and it is absolutely hilarious. I think there's three seasons so far, and it's just an absolute riot. So if I'm watching anything, it's probably that. How much do you love watching good dancers on the internet? Oh, man, this question kind of kills me because my favorite dancer on the internet is no longer on the internet. In my last Q&A, I talked about Daniel Cloud Campos, who is a break dancer and film producer and all these other amazing things. And literally between the time I recorded that and the time I published it, he left Instagram. His account is no longer there and I cannot find him and I don't know where he went and it makes me very sad. So I do love watching good dancers, but I'm mourning the loss of Daniel Cloud Campos and I haven't been watching any. Okay. There's an MMA match between an 800 pound octopus and an 800 pound raccoon in enough water that the octopus can survive. No one gets hurt. It's just a match until submission. <laughs> Which one wins? <laughs> oh my God. And then she writes in parentheses, obviously the octopus in all caps. I think it's got to be the octopus. I mean, eight limbs with little suction cups on them. I don't know, man. Raccoons are scrappy, but I just, if we're talking submission here, I just don't know how you get out of that chokehold. I think the octopus is going to take that one for sure. And that is terrifying, by the way. Casey, I don't know how you thought of that, but that is not a fight I would want to watch. I would want to run very far away and go climb up a very tall cliff. Okay, last question. What are you grateful for? 
Ah, oh, thanks, Casey. Man, I am grateful for my health right now. That is probably the number one thing that comes to mind. I was dealing with a finger injury all spring. But beyond that, I had kind of a small health scare recently and had to go to the doctor and just the pain in the ass of our medical system and all of that. And it was just one of those things in life that really just reminds you, really puts things in perspective and reminds you how much you have to be grateful for. So I'm feeling good. My finger feels good. I've been feeling strong and I'm able to train hard again. And I feel motivated again. I guess that's another thing is that I kind of lost my drive to some extent for a while there going through the whole eating thing and this journey over the last couple of years. There was a there was a chunk of time even into last year where I was still psyched on climbing, but I just didn't feel that focused and I didn't feel as motivated as I wanted to. I didn't feel as driven as I wanted to. And it bothered me and I didn't know if that would come back and that felt scary and I didn't know who I would be if it didn't. And I feel like I would have been okay if it hadn't come back. Um, luckily, that led to some pretty cool other things that I'm doing with my life that have been really rewarding. But I feel really grateful to feel motivated again. I feel focused and I feel driven and I feel hungry to chase some goals. And that just feels really good. So I'm excited to see how that plays out over the rest of the year. And it feels really good to have that balanced with the podcast and everything else that I get to do. It really feels more healthy to have that drive, but balanced with something else that feels meaningful. So, but yeah, a lot to feel grateful for. And thank you for asking that. And that, my friends, is it. That is the final question. A couple of reminders before I let you go. Check out the new Facebook group. You can find that by going to thenuggetclimbing.com. Click on the bonus content thing at the top. There's a link to the Facebook page there. Or just go to Facebook and search for it. It's the Nugget Climbing Community. And it is a private group, but if you're listening to this, I'll let you in. Obviously, I would love to have you over there. I think it's going to be really fun. If you are enjoying these Q&As, if you would like to have your questions featured, please consider becoming a patron. That is a really an amazing way to help out the show. Every dollar and every patron truly do make a difference. You can learn more about that at thenuggetclimbing.com or you can go straight to patreon.com slash thenuggetclimbing. I put a link right there in your podcast app. And then finally, private Q&As. If you're like me 10 years ago and you're scouring the internet with thousands of questions and you don't know where to start, I would love to help you out. I'd love to have a conversation with you and chat and pass on whatever I can, lessons that I've learned, hopefully help you avoid some of the mistakes that I've made. And I think it'd be really fun to get to know you. So that'll end up basically being a private, personalized podcast episode for you to keep referring back to in the future as needed. So that's everything that's going on. Thank you guys so much for listening today. I really appreciate you tuning in and much love to all of you. We'll see you next time. Shake it up, stop when the clock gets 13 You've been working, but you're flirting With the weekend, you can freak out One in a million You're a gem shine when the light grows dim Sing one, one, two, three, four Come